Husbands in the room, think about the moment in time in which you decided that you were going to ask your wife to marry you. Think about wherever it was that you planned it or how you did it. If you're not married in the room, think about how you're going to eventually do that, how you would do it, orchestrate it. Uh, Or if that's no on your mind or on your radar at all, which is a good thing for most of you in the section in front of me. Um, If that's the case, think of a build-up to a moment in your life where it's time to answer the final exam question, right? Everything's led to this point, and now you have to answer the question. Well, uh, when Kara and I were dating, I decided that I was going to ask her to marry me, and uh, I did all the right things. I asked her parents for permission and got all that together. I got the ring, and I've got everything that I'm supposed to do, uh, but I had no plan. And so we went to see my aunt and uncle in San Antonio. It was just a little bit ways from Dallas. And we drove down there to see them. And I was sitting there going, okay, along the way, there are a bunch of beautiful places. I'm sure I will find somewhere. And both families knew that when we came back, we were going to be engaged. Or at least we were hopeful that that was going to be the case. And uh, so we went down, we went to Green, Texas, which is spelled like you Cajun people spell things. It's not even green, it's G-R-U-E-N-E or something like that, Um, not by the regular English language that we all speak. Uh, But we went to Green, Texas, there's a dining, a big dance hall, famous dance hall there, and so I was like, okay, maybe this will be the time, but for some reason that just didn't, didn't work out. Uh, whether or not I was too scared to do it or whether or not it just wasn't the time, it didn't work out. So then we went to San Antonio, went to the Riverwalk, and all over the Riverwalk, there's all kinds of beautiful places and wonderful moments in which you could probably find a spot to get on one knee and ask uh, somebody to marry you. Uh, And yet, for some reason, whether or not I couldn't do it, didn't have the guts to do it, it just, it didn't work out. Uh, We were encountering some weather as well, And so we decided, and she had no clue about this, but we decided we were going to go to a place called Enchanted Rock, um, which is a state park in Texas. It's a big granite dome, and it's very pretty, they say. Um, But we didn't get a chance to go because it was raining, and when it's raining, they shut down the hiking trails on a big giant granite rock because they don't want you to slip and fall. So I did not get the opportunity to see it or to ask Kara to marry me. And so we were driving back home, and I began to freak out because everybody's expecting us to be engaged, and we're on the way home with no plan, and it's raining. And so I am beginning to go through in my head of all the stops along the way. There's Waco, there's Austin, and I'm just going through my head of where could we go that I could pop the question. And I'd never been to Austin, Texas before, and I am a Texan through and through. I have a come and take it flag in my office, um, and I was very disappointed that my daughter had to be born in Louisiana, and she does not get the privilege to be born in Texas. Um, But, so I wanted to go to the state capitol. So we go to the state capitol. Kara was throwing a little bit of a fit because it was raining and dampening our plans, And so she was not helpful in selecting the spot in which we were going to go. And so I gave tons of suggestions and she wouldn't give me an answer. So I just picked the state capitol. So 
We park the car and we're standing in front of the state capitol and there are thousands of people standing in the rain visiting the state capitol. And I was not about to get on one knee in front of all of those people in the rain and ask her to marry me because if she would have said no, there would have been a lot of witnesses. And so we walked around the grounds and we get over, and I can't even believe I'm telling you people this, we get over to the Vietnam War Memorial in the corner of the Capitol building. And I decided there's nobody around and I'm not going home without asking this question. So I'm going to get down on one knee right here and there. And so I got down, asked her the question. She obviously said yes, because we're still married right now. Uh, and maybe not after the sermon. And uh, she said yes. But in that moment, all of those things, all of the dating all of the conversations, all of the text messages, all of the car ride, all of the plans led to that moment. And I thought I knew what she was going to say, but I didn't absolutely, with a matter of fact, know. So it all built to that moment in time in which I had to ask her and she had to give me a question. It's kind of a final exam moment of how did I do? Have I presented myself as a good enough person that you want to spend the rest of your life with? And to which I tell people all the time, she full warrant knew who I was when she said yes. So if you people say that you're sorry for her, she chose this. And so, um, but it was a final exam moment. Well, in Matthew chapter 16, in these verses, it's kind of a final exam moment for the disciples. Jesus has spent two and a half years with them. They've seen him perform miracles. They've seen him teach great teachings. They've seen one of the greatest messages of all time in the Sermon on the Mount. They've seen God do wonderful and miraculous things. And then it comes down to this question that Jesus is going to pose to them, and it's the final exam. From this moment on, things kind of change with the disciples and Jesus. They understand exactly who he is now, and they're going to understand what's going to take place and it's going to change a little bit. And so this is kind of the final exam moment, the buildup to if what Jesus has done and taught them results in what Jesus kind of wanted them to think and say. So first, he's going to ask them a question, and he's going to say, what do other people say about me? And then he's going to say, well, what do you say? I want to challenge you that that is a question that every single person that is in existence in life is going to have to answer. So let's look at the text. If you're there with me, Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, a couple of things. Pause there for a second. Caesarea Philippi is a city on the northern side of Israel. It's in the mountainous range, and it was all surrounded on the north by the Gentile area. If you've gone to Israel, you've probably been to Caesarea Philippi. So if you stand there today, you can see the ruins of these temples that they built to worship these pagan gods. Uh, The city used to be called Pananias, which was the city honoring the god of Pan that they worshipped. So they built a temple into the uh, side of this mountain, this cliffside, and they worshipped the god of Pan, and it was believed that he came, he was born in that cave, and that's where they worshipped him. Later, the Roman Empire, when they started controlling Israel, they changed the name of the city to Caesarea Philippi to honor 
Caesar. They built another temple where they worshiped Caesar in that uh, city. There's another spot in that cave where they actually called the gates of hell is in that, that city, in that spot. And so that's all going to be pertinent to what we're going to talk about in just a second. But, but it's very important that you understand Jesus is posing these questions in an area in which they're surrounded by the worldly voice of who gods are and this worldly pagan religion that is around them. And they're standing there as he's asking and posing this question. And so he begins to ask the question, but first he says, who is the son of man? Or in that question, he says, who do people say the son of man is? Now you need to understand son of man was a term in which every Jew would have recognized as the Messiah, the one to save them, to relieve them from their, uh, the pain and torment of being under the Roman rule, but the one who would truly save them from their sins. That's what the word son of man would have been known as. But the Jews did not like to use that term because it emphasized the humanness of Jesus. It emphasized the humanness of the Messiah. And so they chose not to use that term. They kind of didn't like to use it. But yet Jesus, on the opposite side, used that term most frequently when he discussed himself. He talked about himself as the Son of Man quite often. The, The disciples who were here with him would have recognized that he was absolutely talking about himself when he said, who do they say the Son of Man is? All right? And then he says, who do they? Who do the people around? Now, now they are giving the polite answers, the, the nice answers, what the Jews would say. Now, it is understandable, and what you need to know is that they called Jesus other things that were not this nice. All right? Some even called him Satan or of Satan. Right? And so there's not all of the names, but they chose the nice names that didn't quite hit the mark. So he says, some say, look in verse 14, uh, they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So he poses this question and he says, what do the people around, what does the world say? And so the first point, if you're taking notes, the great question the world gets wrong the great question that the world gets wrong is who do you say that the son of man is who do you say the messiah is he first starts off with john the baptist now john the baptist and jesus had met each other but at this point in time john the baptist has been executed and they actually believe that jesus the ones who just came encounter with jesus and saw his teaching and saw what he was talking about that he might have been john the baptist reincarnated the person that was to pave the way for the Messiah. But yet they did not view him as the one true Messiah. So he was close, but he wasn't all the way there, is what they would say. Uh, Some said Elijah. Elijah was regarded as one of the greatest Old Testament prophets in the Bible. The Jews recognized him as such. Uh, At Passover, at the Passover celebration, some of the modern Jews would actually leave a chair vacant at the table for the symbol of Elijah to return to pave the way for the true Messiah. So they viewed him as possibly Elijah, the person who was to return before the Messiah came and the person who was to pave the way for the Messiah. Jeremiah was another prophet who was highly regarded in the Old Testament, somebody who they actually believed was going to come back to the temple and restore the Ark of the Covenant 
and the place where they worship Jesus and restore everything to the way that it was declared in the Old Testament before the Messiah came. And so we see that these people recognize that Jesus, the Son of Man, is doing wonderful and great things, that he has supernatural power, that he speaks and teaches like no other. And they recognize that it's coming from God in some form or fashion, but they fail to, re- or to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. They get as close as they possibly can to the truth without really getting to the truth. So that's what the world around them is saying. It's not fully recognizing the truth. I ask a question to each of us in this room. How close are you to the truth, but your life does not recognize that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah? How close are you to going through the motions and, and coming to church on Sunday and being involved in the things that the Bible says you could, and you're, you're doing the works and the acts of a Christian, but yet your life does not proclaim that you know the one true Messiah? The world around us, Every religion in which is all around us deals with Jesus. Every one of them has an answer for Jesus because everything has to one day answer to who is Jesus. Some say he was a great teacher. Some say he was a great prophet. Some say he was a good role model, somebody to follow. He was wise beyond belief and that you should listen to his teachings. But the world around us would say that Jesus is not the son of the living God. He's not the Messiah. So the question I pose to you is how close are you to the truth? But then you look after Jesus asked that question. He obviously answers what is all around them. He says in verse 15, but you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? This is that moment in which it built up in which Jesus is putting the disciples on their final exam. And he's asking them the question, who do you say that I am? And he wants them to answer it properly, and he's waiting for the answer. Now, one thing that I want to say to everybody in here is almost all, if not all, of the disciples, they claimed Jesus to be the Messiah before they started following him. Andrew, when he saw Jesus and he picked up and followed Jesus, he recognized him as the Messiah. Nathaniel called him the son of the living God. Peter had spoken this before and said that Jesus was the Messiah. John the Baptist, even when he recognized Jesus, said this is the son of the living God. And so they had all recognized it had been spoken before, but why is Jesus having to ask this again? Why is he having them say it? Well, one of the things that you need to understand is they were looking for a different type of Messiah. They were looking for a military Messiah, somebody who was going to come and relieve them from the rule of the Roman Empire, somebody who was going to battle and lead them into victory. And so they had been taught this their lives, as the Messiah will come, he will will lead them out of this oppression that they're living in. And so they're sitting there, and they have this in their head of what a Messiah truly is, what their Savior is going to look like. And as they begin to hear teachings of Jesus and hear him talk about loving your enemies, and loving yourself or loving your neighbor as yourself they're they're confused because that's not the messiah that they were raised up to believe in and so there was some confusion and some maybe misunderstanding and then they begin to listen to other jesus teachings and as we've noticed as we've gone through the book of john with brother james that there's multiple times in which the disciples just seem to not get it 
They just seem to kind of miss the mark. Jesus just teaches on something, and it seems like they've just kind of zoned out for a second and not paid attention, and they're asking questions to get clarification because they have not recognized him as the true Messiah yet. They've said it, they've vocalized it, but they're waging war inside on if this. Well, when Simon Peter answers here, it solidifies everybody in the group collectively that Jesus is the Messiah and now when he is teaching to them and he is talking to them they view everything through he is our Messiah what is he teaching and what is he saying it changes the way that they behave with him this is the great question that everyone must answer if you're taking notes that's point number two the great question that everybody must answer you are A human being, and you walk on the face of this earth, there will be a day in which you must answer this question. It could be today in which you stand up and claim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. It could have been years ago in which you did that. You're living your life that way. But if you've never claimed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, there will be a day at the end of your life when you stand before God Himself, and you will have to answer, Who do you say that I am? And that will determine where you spend the rest of your life, where you spend eternity. This is the question that each and every single one of us have to answer. We cannot avoid this question. Peter here, when he asks it, he makes this great confession that true followers make. Point number three, the great confession that true followers make. Look in verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now, him proclaiming Jesus Christ as Messiah, as he's proclaiming him to be the one true Savior that they've been looking for and that he is that, he hits the nail on the head. He's the son of the living God. He is God Almighty. He has all power and authority on earth and in heaven because he's the son of the living God, is what Simon Peter is saying here. And so you see that this is built up to this point. He says that, and it is solidified now. It is done. Simon Peter has answered it. Now look what he says right after that. Jesus responded, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. Real quickly on that, I'm not going to spend too much time because we're going to get into some deeper things in a second. But when you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is undoubtedly blessings that come in your life. There's assurance. There's peace. There's hope. There's love, there's mercy, there's grace, right? We receive blessings walking in the assurance that Jesus Christ is our Messiah. Then after that, it says that flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven did. Nobody can be saved by their own true power. Nobody can save themselves. You cannot save somebody else. You're not the one that has power to save anything. It is only by God's grace that we can be saved, and it's his power in us that saves us. The confession that we make to submit our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior is not by anything that we do on our own, but it's Jesus Christ sending the Holy Spirit to work through us to save us. It's him washing us with his blood that makes us righteous, not us and our works and what we do that makes us righteous. So that's the same thing here. God revealed this and spoke to Simon, and that's the truth that he is professing to the disciples and to Jesus in front of him. Then look right after that. 
says, and I also say to you, this is Jesus, that you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. First, now we're going to spend a little bit of time, and I want you to be very gracious with me. There are three ways to take this. One of them is wrong. Two of them are plausible. All right? So he says, you are Peter. The word here that he uses for Peter, and this is very important, is Petros. P-E-T-R-O-S. Petros. That means small rock. Petros, small rock. So he calls Peter Petros. And he says, you are small rock. And then he says, on this rock, I will build my church. When he says on this rock, he uses the word Petra, P-E-T-R-A. That is mountainous rock, solid foundation. And so he says, Peter, you are small rock. And on this rock, I build my church, which is this mountainous foundational rock. Everybody following? So there are some who would say that Jesus was talking specifically to Peter, and he was saying, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. And that is the way that they would interpret it, and then that he would go on and do things, and I'm not going to go any further than that. Right? And that's what they would claim. And I'm not going to go into too much detail, but that is false. He's saying these other two options, which one, he's either saying, This truth of this confession that you just made, that Jesus is Messiah, is the mountainous rock, and you are a small pebble on this mountain because you've confessed this truth. You partake in this mountain, mountainous truth. Or he is saying the other option, which is plausible. He is saying that this is this great foundation of this truth that you convey that we are all followers of Christ and followers of Christ are small rocks that make up this large foundation in which Jesus Christ himself is the cornerstone. But in no way, form, or fashion is Jesus saying Peter is the rock that he's building his church on. He's not saying that. He's saying that the statement of Jesus Christ as Messiah is the rock that he's going to build his church on, and we as believers, fellow apostles and believers in Christ, are going to be the ones who partake in that foundational belief as Christ is our cornerstone, as our rock, and our firm foundation. That is the truth in which he is saying here. And there's no way that you can look at the original language and say it the other way. I'm going to let that rest. And so, but as he's saying that, and as he's looking at this, I want to take a couple of rabbit trails because I guess I'm not going to let it rest. If he was saying, Peter, I'm going to build this church on you and I'm going to elevate you to a position of authority and power and the church is going to be built on you. In Matthew chapter 18, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, who among us is going to be the greatest in heaven? Well, if it was Peter and he was going to be elevated and the church was going to be built on him, in that moment in time, Jesus would have, and that was what was conveyed and the disciples believed who were listening to this, and in that moment in time, Jesus would have corrected them and said, Peter is going to be the greatest among you. But does anybody remember what he said? He says, the one who humbles himself like the child here will be the greatest among you. He doesn't answer Peter. 
Later on, James and John, they come to Jesus with James and John's mother. And she's asking that they be seated in places of glory right next to Jesus. Be seated on his right and on his left. Jesus denies that request and says that they can't do that. But if if that would have been a moment in time for Peter to be elevated and the church to be built on him, he would have said, you can't do this. Peter's going to sit on my right or my left. He didn't say that. So there is nowhere in Scripture in which Peter is going to be elevated to a higher stature than the rest of the followers of Christ. Actually, in 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe, verses 4 through 7, you can go there on your own and read it. Peter himself even acknowledges this when he's writing this book, and he says that we're all living stones. And that Jesus Christ is the firm foundation in which we build the church on. So Peter himself even acknowledges that the foundational rock in which we build the church on, in which the church is being built, is the foundation of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So that is the truth that we see here. But notice right after that, right after he says, I'll build my, or after he says on this rock, he says, I will build my church. Now we know Jesus to be truthful to not be able to tell a lie, to not have sin in his life, to when he speaks and his word is followed, it to be true and it to be trustworthy and it to be something that we can rely on. And so when he says, I will build my church, notice it's not Peter will build the church, it's not the disciples will build the church, it's I will build my church. And notice that it is a will, it's going to happen, it is happening, and he is standing on that trustworthy truth that nothing can happen to prohibit the plan of Christ taking place in this world. The church will be built because God has said it's going to happen. His church is going to prevail because he said it's going to happen. It's, it's absolute and it cannot be opposed. Nothing can oppose his promise. Then look after that, right after he says, I will build my church. He says, the gates of hell will not prevail. In verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, whatever, or sorry, verse 18, and I also say to you, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Now, some interpretation hasn't taken this as we are going to wage war against the gates of hell, and we're going to overpower uh, Satan and all of those things, but that's not what's being talked about here, yet that is taught in Scripture that we are going to wage spiritual warfare against Satan. But that's not what he's saying here. The gates here are to hold back and to prevent one from getting out. And so the gates of Hades will not prevail. The gates of hell will not prevail is saying that the uh, the sting of death will no longer have its sting. The power of victory of hell will no longer be. Because the truth of Jesus Christ as Messiah sets us who are following that free from the power of hell. And from being held back by that. And so he is saying that if you are in this truth, this foundational rock in which we've talked about, this mountainous truth, the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against you. You will not have to fear death. You will not have to live life in worry of death. You will not have to live life in worry what's going to happen to you after you die. Because the gates of hell themselves have no power over you anymore. What he's saying So as he's saying this, and as he's looking at them, you're reminded of the verse, oh, 
Death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? That's exactly what is taking place here. And then he says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Because you're in this foundational truth, you're in this bedrock, mountainous truth that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, the gates of hell are not going to prevail over you, and because of that, you're going to get the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The keys to the kingdom of heaven is the blessings and the authority that come from heaven, that we have in our life bestowed upon us through the Holy Spirit and the blessing of God because we're his children. And so when we inherit that, we get the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We're granted full access to the things of heaven here on earth. We're granted to the power and authority that Jesus had on earth here in heaven. We're granted to the blessings that Jesus wants us to partake in here on heaven. We're granted to no longer being controlled by death or Satan here on earth because of this foundational truth. And after he says the keys... He says this, and I want you to pay attention to this. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell them that he wasn't the Messiah. Binding and loosing is to restrain or forbid is to bind. And to loose is to open up, to permit, to set free. Okay? So he's saying you will bind on earth and you will prohibit on earth. You will forbid on earth. You will permit on earth. You will set free on earth. All right. Now that can be a little confusing, but I want to point one more thing out before we dive into it. Notice right after he's talking about what we will do. He says on earth, uh, you know, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound. Notice that will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Now, this is not a suck-up sermon to our wonderful pastor, but for the first time in my life, he actually gave me some help on my sermon. He called me last night, and we were talking, and I already had this in my notes, but I'm going to give him credit for it. Uh, This is the perfect tense right here. The will have been is perfect tense meaning that it has already taken place and it is still being taken place. And so what it is saying here is that what is bound and loosed in heaven will be bound and loosed on earth because you will be my ambassador on earth speaking on my behalf. And so in other words, and I want everybody to pay attention to this, we do not take the Bible and the authority of the Bible and change it to what we say because we are the binding and the loosening We take what the Bible says and we speak on its behalf with authority and we bind and loose to what the Bible says. Does that make sense? We do not live a life in which we can say this is what we think the truth is. This is my truth. This is what I want it to say and live a life by that. We live our life, living life with the authority of Jesus Christ, knowing that what this book says, this holy book that is true, that is inerrant, that is all-powerful, we will live our life by it, and we will speak authoritatively into the world. Listen to this. It's saying you will bind and you will loose on earth. 
as it is in heaven, because you will live your life by this, and when you see things that heaven forbids, you will forbid it and speak against it. When you see things that heaven accepts, you will accept it and speak for it, because you are speaking on behalf authoritatively to what has happened in heaven and what God approves. You will not look at something, and the Bible says it's not good, and you say, well, we will accept it. You will not look at something, and the Bible says it's acceptworthy, and you will reject it. You will stand on it. You will look at at it and you'll speak authoritatively, binding and loosening what has already been bound in heaven. You will live your life with what the Bible says. You will not change the Bible to look like your life. That's what he is saying. And when he's talking about the gates of hell, they will not prevail, it's because of that authority. We speak to those around us and share Jesus with them because we have the authority to speak on what God has done on our behalf. He grants us that authority. He tells us that we get to share that. So in closing, I ask three questions. Three questions to you that I'd like for you to write down. The first question question that we all have to answer who do you say that jesus is he a good teacher a good preacher a good prophet he your lord and savior who do you say that jesus is second question are the gates of hell prevailing in your life do you live life in fear of death Do you live life in fear of what Satan can do in your life? Or are you living life as if God is the one who has granted you the peace, the love, and the the purpose, and that the gates of hell will not prevail against you in your life because you're standing on Christ alone? Are the gates of hell prevailing in your life? Third thing. What are you doing with the keys to heaven? What are you doing with the authority that has been given to you, with the message and the foundational truth that has been given to you? Are you being the comfortable Christian that the world around you is speaking its own gospel, speaking its own truth, and allowing the world to speak into the next generation and to those around you and into your family, and you're just sitting there as the comfortable Christian, holding the keys to the kingdom of heaven, but failing to use them or access them or have the authority to speak on God's behalf? What are you doing with the keys to the kingdom of heaven? My friends, if you look around us and you look at the church in America they have failed to use the kingdom of the keys to the kingdom of heaven and they have failed to speak authoritatively against the gates of hell and all around us there are people who are falling for this falsehood who are falling into satan's trap and there are people who hold the keys who hold the power hold the authority and they're sitting there and allowing people to continue to fall into that trap what are you doing with the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you didn't have an answer for the first question. Maybe you don't know if Jesus is your Lord and Savior. There's some doubt. Today can be the day that you come down, you talk to somebody, and you say, I want to answer that question. 
want to give my life to the Lord. We'd love to talk to you about it. But maybe there's some of us in here who have been the comfortable Christian and we're not living a life with the authority against the gates of hell. We're not living life with the keys to the kingdom of heaven and accessing and using them properly. We have the keys, but they're in our pocket. Maybe it's time for some of us to come down and repent. Say, God, we're going to pull the keys out and we're going to start using them. But whatever it is, do not, do not, do not think that you can continue to not speak on God's behalf and not use your keys and not speak against the gates of hell and that the world around us is going to get better. I told the first service this and I'll tell the people this in this room too. I cannot stand it when people say, I can't wait till Jesus comes back. One of my pet peeves because I think it's lazy. People who are obviously complaining about the world and what's going on and they're saying this is obviously not right. And they just can't wait till Jesus comes back and wrecks havoc and judges the world. When we hold the keys to the kingdom, we hold the answers. And all we've got to do is start sharing it one at a time. The disciples changed the world by just sharing it one person at a time. Twelve people multiplied to the point to where thousands of years later, you have heard the gospel truth in a continent that is so far away. It's because people use the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So instead of, I can't wait till Jesus gets back, why don't we start using our keys? Why don't we start pushing back the gates of hell and not letting them prevail? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this word that you have spoken today. Lord, I pray that it was yours and not mine. Lord, right now we come to you thanking you for you being our Messiah, our Savior, dying on the cross for us. Lord, I pray right now if there's somebody in here who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that you'd begin to convict them of that sin and that need for, for you. That you give them the courage and the power to stand up out of their seat and to walk this aisle and to come down and get the, get the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Lord, I pray for the rest of us, including myself, as we live our life, that we would begin to look for opportunities to push back Satan, to make sure that the gates of hell are not prevailing in other people's lives around us. That we would open up the keys and the doors to your truth, your foundational truth in which we stand on. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.